Teenagers, the show that subjects Gossip Girl, Glee, and Skins to a level of scrutiny they definitely deserve. Back from a one-week hiatus, uh, I'm Ryan Shealy. Matt Rather is a big, fat douchebag. Hi, Ryan. And he's here on the call. We're coming in from <laughs> Los Angeles. Uh, Jordan Stokes is not a douchebag, uh, and he's joining us as well, so it's a three-hander. <laughs> I don't know That's why. I guess it's a six-hander. I don't really know why I like got off light there. The the pre-show hostility that was going on in the back channel was definitely like me and rather against Ryan. And yet, for some reason, rather got all of his hostility. Well, and I, that was that's in the back channel. Like the uh, in the last episode, all of the on-air hostility was mostly coming from from Matt. Um, so, okay. I mean, uh, I was only doing it because you weren't there to defend yourself. That's good. Well, uh, you know, I'm giving you the chance to defend yourself, but defend yourself. Um, with the, uh, the, the your ideas. And you know who cannot defend themselves? Our listeners. Our listeners are subject to, uh, we can run roughshod over them, and yet they return week after week, and we're grateful for that. So if you want to defend yourselves, uh, dear listeners, uh, join the conversation. Um, uh, 20, uh, or no, no, sorry, uh, uh, podcast at, no, what was it? TFT podcast at overthinkingit.com. <laughs> God damn it. We are going um, to. We are there's going also to... a phone number that I don't remember at this moment, um, but uh, someone will tell you what it is. It's 203 285 6401. That's 20 Fat Jog 01. Uh, join the conversation on the Twitters uh, at TFT Podcast. Um, well, that was that. That went really well. <laughs> I call for a. I call for a coup, <laughs> bloody or bloodless, <laughs> depending on your preference. Yeah, I, I, I'll uh, I'll step down. I'll 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 uh, I'll, uh, I'll 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 abdicate. Um, no, I won't. Um, we're here to talk about <laughs> sin. If Sheila uh, is in ethnicity, I advocate ethnic cleansing. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> That's not even really funny. <laughs> well, you know. Okay. So speaking of uh, of ethnicity and cleansing and identity. Uh, Skin series two episode three uh, Sid, um, which uh, has a which which plays at um, a number of uh, ethnic and na- nationalist stereotypes of um, of, uh, of of Europe, um, both uh, Scottish and German. So let's 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 jump in there. Um, you know where we last saw uh, a close up on Sid um, and Sid's home life. His mother had left uh, his father. Um, and and we see that he's that she's now taken up with Manfred, um, a pretty Euro trashy trashily um, portrayed um, German. And the uh, the setup of this episode is that she has to to come home to put on a kind of uh, dog and pony show for uh, Sid's grandfather, uh, Sid's dad's dad, uh, who thinks that they're still together, um, and who is uh, a a belligerent Scotsman. <laughs> Yeah, putting it mildly. But this is not a summary show. This is an overthinking show. So, uh, Matt and Jordan, what is what do these um, these national stereotypes mean? Why why are they important to sort of setting the scene of this um, domestic drama or this domestic farce that that plays out in this uh, uh, in this episode? <laughs> okay, I'll go. I'll go. I'll be happy to go. Have we lost Matt, or is he just being a douchebag? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sharpening my bayonet. <laughs> nice. So, what I think is interesting about this uh, this particular episode is how it's kind of like a a really really broad uh, lowest common denominator uh, lowest common denominator sex farce that goes off the rails in real one and becomes a, a tragedy. Because I, and I think that that's kind of like what these broad ethnic stereotypes are doing, is that if I was telling you, hey, I've got a, uh, 
uh, I think of this as a particularly British genre for some reason. I've got a British TV show where there are broad ethnic stereotypes and uh, there's a marriage where they're going to, in order to fool the father-in-law, the mother is going to come back and, uh, and pretend to still be married to the father. And early on, uh, she will walk in on some people having sex in her son's room. And uh, there's, go- like, there's going to be a, a wacky uncle and two creepy nephews who, uh, who like, uh, physically attack people and, uh, and misunderstandings. A scene of, a scene yeah. of automobile-based mutual masturbation. Yeah, sure, sure, and and uh, like and people will be very confused as to who's having sex with who. Then I would think this is going to be a silly comedy, and yet actually it is. It is not a particularly silly comedy. But that's only. I mean, that's mainly just because Sid's dad dies, right? <laughs> well, no, it's Even, not. It's the Sid. It's the Sid's dad dying plotline, and it's also the Sid and Cassie plotline. Yeah, yeah. Like you, you don't expect. Uh, Sid to be really, really hurt and, like, smash his expensive computer, you expect him to be like, oh, well, I'll get my own back by sleeping with some inappropriate woman, and then uh, a chain of sort of reversals right at the end where uh, Cassie ends up disguising herself as the prostitute and admitting that she loved him all along, you know? That, that, that's, like, the one that I would write. There's, a, uh, there's an F. Scott Fitzgerald story that's like that. He was slumming and writing like weekly magazine fiction, and it's about a you know it's about a woman, uh, upper class woman who's slated to be married to a very boring man, um, and uh, one day she's walking down by the docks, and a pirate kidnaps her and takes her out on a yacht and shows her great adventures. And long story short, the the pirate is the boring guy in disguise. Um, mm-hmm. But and you know it's all very formulaic like this. But Fitzgerald uh, sort of knows what he's doing and signals to the reader that like, hey, this is beneath all of us. But let's let's just enjoy it. So the last line of the the uh, the story is uh, he drew her into his arms and kissed her in the illustration. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Um, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, where Cassie dresses up like Michelle in a like in a brown curly wig and and you know suddenly. Suddenly she says, oh, fabulous or super or whatever it is. She oh, says. wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> Sid, Sid, your penis. Oh, wow. <laughs> look at, look at. <laughs> um, I mean, but I, I still wonder whether I think the thing about that is that that's um, open ended. Right. I, I feel like that's the like if if this were a two hour, you know, film, then that would have to be resolved, you know, like where things were left at the end of this episode, you know, would say that, yes, this is like, this is a tragedy. Um, but mm-hmm. I feel like that arc, you know, you know, this setup of miscommunication, misunderstanding, driving apart a happy couple, like, is still kind of a typical point in the arc of a, of a standard romantic comedy, right? And, um, and so we actually don't know, right, the, the, the end of the episode where they're on, you know, trains, trains passing. It's kind, of the, it's kind of the spinning top of this episode, but we, it's going to be... Uh, <laughs> nice one, nice one. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh, see what I did there? Um, but uh, it's going to... Um, I think it's going to be resolved, right? This is not going to be a cliffhanger because um, we, you know, we know the rules that are set up. I mean, it's not lazy writing uh, either, right? It's, it's, well, I mean, it's, we don't have to be coy, right? This is this is the spoiler podcast, yeah, so right, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Even for the, the show that we're even for the show that we're on, so Sid, Sid's going to stoop Michelle, and then Cassie's going to find out, and then the girls are going to have it out, and I think, I think then Sid ends up with Cassie, and then they break up or something at the end. Yeah, and like Chris dies, and uh, Jal has an abortion <laughs> too. Uh, yeah. No, but I, I think I think that uh, that Sid and Cassie end up amb- at least ambiguously together. Like they 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 go back and forth for a while, and then it like it ends with him going in to meet her, and they're like they haven't quite said hello yet. But uh, then the series ends, and you're allowed to sort of project your own happy ending onto you know, it. Oh, so so there's an there's an inception ending even for uh, even at the end of the series. So I actually hadn't like really you know either watched or Wikipedia'd uh, in in a lot of depth how it all ends. I Wikipedia. <laughs> and I, also, there's a Skins Wiki, a dedicated Skins Wiki, which you can get by googling Skins Wiki. But can I mean? Can we talk about this? Because I think genre is um, genre is uh, important here. Like I was thinking at the beginning of the um, of the episode when he's 
uh, Jordan talked about farce and how no one can, uh, maybe this was in the pre-show, but no one can let anyone get a word in edgewise because to do so would be to unravel the whole chain of coincidences on which the romantic plot, the kind of romantic misadventures um, are predicated. Uh, right, and and so um, so what what you're left with is sort of decision making in an environment of incomplete information, right? Sure. And it struck me that there were two. There are two rubrics for um, for understanding this. One is tragedy, and the other is game theory and international relations. Isn't that right, Ryan? <laughs> That's correct. But keep 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 unpacking that. You're you're doing just fine. <laughs> well, the um, right. Uh, so one of the the characteristics of tragedy in practice, though this this wouldn't be, I think, part of the classical definition. But as as you see it practiced, what happens more often than not is that you have a moment, um, you have a moment of oh God, if only. So-and-so, you know what I mean? If only Sid had let Cassie get a word in edgewise the second time they talked. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, 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 that's, that's my gay BFF. And he was in, he was in bed with his uh, boyfriend, and there you go. Yeah, if, if only the Jets had let Anita explain what was going on before they sexually assaulted her. Yeah, then, or if like, only, like, Balthazar or whatever had made it to, uh, you know, Mantua, right, in time to tell Romeo that there was this whole, whole, whole funny plan going on. But, right. but I think what's, what's interesting about that is that those, you know, the two examples that you just gave are a bit more structural, right? And I actually think that the if only here um, has a little more agency behind it, right? It's kind of like, it, it, it's a little more Sid being a insecure douchebag. Um, and we can get to this because we've actually had some, um, some listeners write in saying how much um, they actually liked, uh, liked Sid um, and, and, and really kind of, you know, shipped for Sid and, and Cassie. Um, but, but, you know, before, but, but before getting in, into that, it's just, it seems like um, it's really striking, right, that, you know, Sid not letting Cassie get a word in edgewise was his decision, right? He had already made up his mind rather than, you know, saying, well, this looks bad, but let me, let me ask what's up. Right, and you I don't know. I don't know. I personally, I mean, I, I, with this one, with this one, I put the blame on Cassie for like for not. I feel like Sid gave her enough time. Like when he's like when he says, "I saw everything you were doing," she should have said, "Oh no, 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 wait, he's gay," you know, rather than like, "Oh wow, do you trust me?" Like you know, it, it, it seems to me that uh, this is one of the cases where I'm actually not a big fan of Sid. I think that he's kind of kind of a really mean spirited and selfish person. Um, but I, I feel like in this case. You know, he saw his girlfriend getting naked into bed with another man, and then rather than sit there and watch it all, he turned off his computer, which is probably the decent thing to do. That's not that ambiguous, you know? Like, you you need a cartoonish sex farce plot for that to be anything other than exactly what it looks like. And I think that most uh, most people, or at least most TV characters, would have just, like, never spoken to her again, you know? And that would be Sid being a jerk, and it's, a, it's his own fault. He did call her up, you know, or answer the phone or whatever, and she could have gotten a word in edgewise had she so chosen, but she didn't. It's also, in a, you know, in an environment of incomplete information, you're like a person's own assumptions, you know, their own unconscious assumptions. God, okay, so tragedy, uh, game theory, and psychoanalysis, apparently. Um, mm-hmm. the, their own kind of unconscious conflicts rush in to fill the void in an, in an uh, atmosphere of incomplete information, unless you're really, really consciously trying not to do that. And so, like, Sid, it's kind of, it's kind of established that Sid is, is under... Uh, uh, under the influence of this this style of thinking where nothing ever works and no yeah. one ever really loves everyone and you know and he's got he's got some issues with infidelity right exactly like it, you know it's and it it must feel like the chickens coming home to roost in a sense like just as you know just as my dad's woman right like left her uh um you know so is my so too is my woman leaving me right but i i still think that right so i i, I guess i could Agree with that, but what it is is that the the structures here, right? So then I, I could still say then I, I could actually be convinced that there is something structural going on. But what's interesting that is is that the structure is still internal, right? It's a cognitive um, and psychological structure as a um, that is leading to the incomplete information, that leads to tragedy, as opposed to like coincidence, you know, a, a you know a, a you know a mis 
train or a, you know, someone, you know, not forgetting to say something or being malicious that are a lot of the tropes in standard um, tragedy. Because uh, I think there is, though, in addition to this, like, Sid's, you know, mental model of, like, people are unfaithful, nothing, nothing lasts, uh, trust no one. I mean, I think there's this interesting... Um, I think there's, uh, I, I read something that Sid said, um, and I think it was actually the last thing that Sid's dad said to, to him uh, before, he, before he dies, um, is he says something like, you know, they're always with some guy. Um, if you're special, you just have to make, make sure that guy is you. Um, and I think that that's, I mean, I think that's interesting. And it's at first meant to, you know, I think play, it portrays his dad in a more um, sympathetic light, and and I think also is trying to give um, Sid the kick in the butt to like rethink uh, how he responded to, to Cassie. But there's also an underlying assumption there, an underlying mental model that is like it's still the reference point for a woman is some guy, right? And then hmm. like the, and then it actually assumes. Um, a reduction of, of agency on the women's part. Uh, but a woman's always going to be with a guy as the default. Um, and there's not, and, and the, then it just comes down to a contest between, between men. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, and I think that you see a lot of that in Sid's, like, you know, pursuit of Michelle as well and, and the, the virginity loss subplot. Um, and it, I think it's, I mean, I think that it is, also possibly what of uh, you know may make some viewers feel ambivalent about about Sid. Um, I mean maybe we should uh, let's let's turn to that. Um, well, hang on, I want to stick with what I want to stick with what you were saying there for a minute because okay. I think it's really interesting. There's a degree to which that that idea, right, that like that a girl is um, is a highly valent molecule that needs to form a bond right with uh with with some guy is something that informs writers rooms across the country you know that like people people think all right well now we've got to fix up this character with someone you know and you can see that sort of happening to various characters and skins as it goes along like the uh the jowl chris relationship that's going to form in a bit like that doesn't seem like something that arises organically out of the characters. It seems like something that happens because they're like, well, what are we going to do with the Jal now? Eh, let's stick her with Chris. And I think it's also something that uh, the, the whole like the fan fiction shipping community that we've talked about quite a bit in these podcasts, um, I think that they do that to a great degree. It's sort of... Um, and I wonder whether it's more with the female characters or more with the male characters. We, we might need to turn that over to the fan base, like, who know more about how the ratios work with this kind of thing. Does one tend to take the female character and sort of, like, find a person to, to put them with? Or do you do it with the male characters? You know, um, but there, but either way, there's a tendency to be like, all right, well, in my sort of uh, collect my constellation of ships, it goes. Uh, Sid goes with Cassie, and Tony ends up with Anwar, and etc. 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 Until everyone is sort of paired <laughs> off, right? And then, like anyone who's left over, you don't write stories about them. <laughs> there's no. Uh, <laughs> and now I'm remembering how we used to. Uh, Back back in our, uh, our our nefarious college days, we would sort of put together the names of people who were in, in couples, and uh, <laughs> there were a couple of people who, who got to be with like with no one at all. <laughs> Bro, body. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was it was Carlo Buddy. I think I remember we we were talking Carlo about. Buddy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's. I, mean, I think it's interesting, though. I mean, because I mean, there is an assumption. I mean, I, again, I'm also just um, getting familiar uh, with the the fanfic and the slash fic um, communities as a result of some of our listeners who have written in, and at least some time that I spent on um, on one of the um, Glee slash fiction pages. I mean, there's no even no assumption that there's like re- things end up in a um, as as pairs, right? As dyads. Um, you know, I think it's almost like that. You know, one of the ones that I, I looked through was uh, was already everybody, right? Which uh, Glee Glee fiction, which already already hooked up with every single member of the Glee club, um, and and so there's not necessarily. Uh, a, a stable trend towards monogamy, but maybe again, maybe that was the outlier. My my data set is not is not huge at this point. 
The, um, also, I mean, the, Jordan, early on in the days, we were thinking it wrote a post that I that have come back to half a dozen times about the differences between storytelling and serial fiction telling, right? And, like, the only imperative of serial fiction is that the, 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 there be more episodes, you know? Yeah, it's like, uh, it's like Slavoj like Zizek says about, like, the only desire of desire is to perpetuate desire rather than to fulfill desire. Sure, right. Huh. Well, I think that, I mean, it's interesting. It does say something about the universe of, um, of skins and kind of the idea of, of order within that universe. Um, you know, that we've, we, we've joked or we've said, you know, in the universe of Gossip Girl, it is the telos of the, of the teenage girl to go wild, right? And, and it seems that at least within this universe, it's, it is the telos uh, of the teenage girl to, to be with... Uh, with with a teenage boy, right? <laughs> it seems like it, yeah. Um, should we read this uh, email that we got? Oh yeah, this yeah, is a good go one. Um, uh, this is from listener Eve, right? Yeah, and uh, Ryan, your your sound quality has gone uh, balls out again. So I'm I'm gonna I'll I'll read it out. Oh, here's the coup. Here's the coup. <laughs> yeah. I, by the way, so, so Matt, Matt actually set the fire in my internet connection, so he could uh, take control of the um, <laughs> can take control of the podcast. Ryan Sheely is a leader. He can't even maintain a decent internet connection. <laughs> small Dick Chris and Small Bandwidth Ryan, partners in suck. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know why. I felt very hostile. Actually, I should report my like subjective emotional experience watching the Sid episode. I felt like I really felt for Sid's dad. Uh, you know, I wanted to like punch the old the the old man in the uh, in the face on his behalf. You know, it's it's terrible to see a, a character. Um, be painted as sympathetic and then kind of suffer, you know, uh, unfairly at the at the hands of others. So I'm, you know, Ryan, I'm I'm I've displaced my uh, I've displaced my anger at the Scottish old man onto you. I'm afraid. I mean, I'm, I am Scotch Irish, so I guess I guess it makes sense. <laughs> you Ponzi. Uh, this is from this is from Eve. Uh, hi guys. Um, I thought I'd send another reading response as a sort of second audition for the role of female podcaster. I'll try to keep this one short. Uh, we didn't read out the last one in its entirety, but we'll, we'll read this one out. So here we go. Uh, I imagine you guys are going to spend some time talking about nationality. I don't know much about English-Scottish relations, but the characters of skin seem to de- see Scotland the way that Americans see the rural Midwest, as a hinterland full of traditional family values and men who know how to fix things. Skid's family, Sid's family equates Scottishness with manliness and disapproves of Sid and his dad for being too bourgeois and English. The show, however, encourages to see Scottish machismo as pure bluster. The creepy red-headed kid starts crying, the family business turns out to be dry-cleaning, and Cassie's friend turns out to be gay. Uh, and though Sid's... I'd, I'd add to that that um, Sid's uncle gets you know knocked down the stairs by the German guy, and... Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, sorry, continuing with Eve's email. And though Sid's dad associates Germanness with the Nazis, Manfred is less a cold Teutonic killing machine and more a melodramatic sad sack with thin glasses and a funny accent. His Germanness seems to, to make him girly in comparison to Sid's ex Scotsman father. But uh, the episode wraps with a nice message about how manliness isn't about external signifiers like nationality or ability to fix things, but how, about how it's about standing up for what's right. It seemed to me that Sid's dad could die. At the end, because he had reached the pinnacle of his manhood by telling off his own father. Uh, that's some Joseph Campbell shit right there. It's actually some. That's also some Freud shit and some some, some real Freud shit, right? And some, also some Harold Bloom shit, right? Like hmm. he had he had sort of come out from the anxiety of his father's influence, right? Anyway, so um, yeah, I mean, I you know we think that's good. Uh, so Eve, we're going on things. I hope you guys discuss on the podcast, says Eve. Um, uh, technological ability and how it is distributed across genders. I think she means with Cassie not being able to work her webcam or being able to, but I mean, because that's really a show. She can work her webcam. 
but uh, she doesn't want him. Uh, uh, she doesn't want Sid to see her because she's trying on sexy underwear for her surprise visit to Sid. Uh, uh, going on narrative coincidence and why it always seems to fuck Sid over. Why is Sketch a chess master and Sid is just a victim? Tony is a replacement first for Cassie and then for Sid's dad. Uh, Islam in the Skins universe with respect to Anwar and the fatwa against the school. <laughs> Fatwa. <laughs> uh, and finally, a report from the front lines. Uh, when my friends and I, all girls, first got into skins, we instantly fell in love with Sid. Sid was the character we both identified with most strongly and lusted after most passionately. So why do ki- uh, teenage girls love Sid and not Tony or Chris? Well, because Tony's a Riri and Chris has a small dick. No, that's... <laughs> That's, that's my terrible. That's, that's why terrible. you. That's why you uh, love Sid and not Tony. <laughs> um, no, this is this is what what Eve actually says. My guess is one, he's non-threatening. Two, the series opens with Skid being Sid. I keep saying Skid. I think from Skins uh, and also Scottish. Uh, and with Sid being initiated into the ranks of fucking teenagerhood, making him a bit of an audience avatar, since. Uh, Sid is a perpetual victim of narrative coincidence. He makes very few choices, leaving little opportunity for the audience to disapprove of or disagree with these choices. Uh, Did you guys fall in love with Sid? If so, why? Uh, Thanks for reading Overthinkers. Look forward to the next installment. Well, Eve, I'll say uh, I didn't fall in love with Sid, but I've written a Sid Ryan Sheely slash fic that you can download. On fiction to you're, right. you're, fiction you're just destroying this podcast. It's going to splinter off. I'm going to have my own podcast where I talk to myself for an hour every week. <laughs> I thought you already had that. Oh yeah. <laughs> In a sense. In a uh, have you have have you actually written that fanfic, Matt? No, no, I haven't. We can write it together if you like. I mean, it'd be pretty sad if you wrote that before writing, oh, I don't know, an article for overthinking.com. Fair enough. Uh, it's, like, it's like the the end of a marriage. Like they hear, like, <laughs> you cut me you you cut me deep, Ryan. But it's you know it's a it was a fair shot. Absolutely. I mean, we we are often accused, and justly, I might add, of spending too much time on the site, and I think in particular on the podcasts, engaged in sort of masturbatory behavior, stroking, you know, what a wonderful job we're doing with overthinking it and with these fucking teenagers and everything else. And I think the logical conclusion of that is to write sexually explicit fiction starring ourselves and each other, <laughs> you know, as opposed to actually writing anything for the site. <laughs> it's a, right, absolutely. It's a it's a it's a it's not so much a, a str- story as a circle jerk story kind of you yeah. know but let me say i i uh really do not like sid a lot i got very angry at sid very early on and i've stayed pretty much angry at him and i don't mean to you know people's interpretations of the characters are their own and if uh if you know people fall in love with him that's all right Right? I don't mean to, to be criticizing you for, uh, for finding Sid appealing, but I found him appalling because in that very first episode, uh, he, he wants to have sex with somebody, right? Doesn't care who. He just wants to lose his virginity. And the plan that Tony comes up with is quite unambigu- unambiguously for Sid to date rape someone. Like he says, here's the plan. We're going to pick a girl who is not too discriminate, right? And we're going to get her so drunk that she will have sex with you. Right, that like you know that that uh, that her her normal aversion to having sex with you will go away, and you can have sex with her. And Sid's like reaction to this is, yeah, sounds great, you know. And then there's a moment late in the episode where Cassie, before passing out, says, you know, if you're going to to do stuff to me, you should do it soon because I'm I'm about to be unconscious. Um, and Sid doesn't, which is a good thing, I suppose. But at that point, I was already kind of. You know, he was he was not in my good books, and it felt like a transparent ploy by the writers to try to make him sympathetic because, oh, he was he was so chivalrous as to not actually carry through with raping her, you know, and that to me is not a uh, a sufficient standard for being a good person. Um, and then <laughs> simply, <laughs> simply the absence of being a rapist. Yeah. Yeah. The, like the, the, that's, that's such weak tea. And it's something that, I mean, you'll see every now and then in, in fiction and whenever I see it done, I, I always get angry at the character, you know? Um, and then so are he, you, are you, are you accusing the writers of skins of weak tea bagging? 
Yes, absolutely. Fine. But, uh, but let, me, let me just uh, finish up. He doesn't do anything else that's quite that bad, but he consistently treats people um, terribly because he's so self-centered. You know, Cassie spends so much time trying to be nice to him, and he just sort of, like, moans about Michelle. There's a moment uh, in this episode, right, where he's sort of, like, talking to his father about their grandfather. Um, and, and his father says, you know, my grandfather has always thought that I'm rubbish. And Sid says, is that how, what you think about me? And I almost, like, screamed at, the, at my laptop where I was watching this, no, you, you twat, that's what you think about your father. Your first interaction with him in this episode was to say that he's an utter cretin. I think they say cretin is, is the way that he said it with, his, with, uh, with the British accent. Um, and that, like, the reason that, that uh, your mother left him is because he wasn't good enough. Right. Whereas he has never done anything to you other than to, like, ask for your help with the freaking vacuum cleaner. I don't know. That's not true. I mean, the, the first Sid episode um, is is basically Sid's dad acting like to towards Sid, like Sid's um, grandfather acts towards Sid's dad. Right. Um, I mean, well, see, I didn't I didn't watch the first Sid episode. So this is <laughs> This is how the cycle of abuse perpetuates itself. It's like it's, you hated Sid so much that you could not you could not bear to to watch the Sid centric episode. I basically did what I'm criticizing Sid for doing. Is that like I was too worried about my own problems to listen to someone cry out for help? You know. I th- Jordan, is there anything? I mean, may- maybe the answer is no. But do you cut the characters any slack based on the fact that they're adolescents? You know what I mean? That they're not sort of fully adults yet, and that like kind of ridiculous acting out is one of the things that that fucking teenagers do. I think that probably what it is is that in my own sort of teenager and probably into early twentieshood, my like biggest stupidity that I would do is be so wrapped up in my own problems as to not notice when people around me were hurting. So when I see Sid doing that, I cut him less slack for that. And then I cut, say, Anwar for being oversexed or Tony for being like a jerk even, you know? Um, but that's, yeah. I mean, that's, I, I don't know. I, I would say that being extremely self-involved is part and parcel of, of being a teenager. You know, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it comes with the territory, but uh, the, the degree to which you see it here um, and the degree to which he's never called on it. Like, I, I think that you're meant to see him as the audience insert character, but no one ever, like, takes him aside and says, like, you know, maybe you should, you know, get your, get your head out of your butt for a second and pay attention to other people's lives. Um, ah. Drives me so nuts. Jal, Jal <laughs> does that. Jal does that to him in season one, um, where like shortly after Cassie winds up in the uh, in the hospital because you know for trying to commit suicide after Sid blows off their date, um, mm. Jal kind of smacks him around, gives him a verbal smackdown. But even in his interactions with Jal, like when she she comes to him with her problems, and he's like too busy pining over Michelle to listen to them. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, I guess the, the question, and we we don't know again. And even though you know we know, I think it'll be interesting to see how they play it out in the rest of um, of, of series two. Here is, I mean, I think that there's an opportunity for growth there, right? So I guess, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think I actually agree with a lot of of your um, assessment of of Sid's character in, in a positive sense. That like I think your reading of it. Um, is is correct. I think that I attach less of a negative um, normative assessment to this, right? So I, mm-hmm. I don't think that this is like, I mean, like what my, my hope for, so I guess I'm more in line with even, maybe even a third kind of view, which is that I, I'm willing to cut Sid slack for hope that he will like he will learn and actually have a wake up, uh, you know, some kind of a moment of clarity. Um, and then there's another a second question of whether that will be well drawn and whether you know the 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 way they do that actually still is reflective of certain kinds of you know cultural biases or sort of gender stereotypes. But I mean, I think as a character. Um, I mean, I, I, I definitely don't find myself uh, hating Sid in the way that you did it, in part because I'm not as, um, I'm more, maybe, maybe I'm just more sympathetic to the, um, you know, to the particular uh, version of involved fucking teenagerhood that he um, uh, is experiencing and hoping that he, you know, grows out of it. 
I will say that much as uh, the character rubs me the wrong way, I do think that he is one of the more well-drawn characters. Like, it it all feels very true to life. It's not like I think that he's uh, more self-involved than an actual teenager could be. It just just makes you hate teenagers in general. Yes, yes. Don't say say that. They're our audience. Kill them all and let God sort them out, I say. (laughs) Uh, I, I I believe the children of the future. Um, let's uh, uh, let's get to uh, let's get to moments of of clarity eventually. Which which it's it's almost like sometimes when you have a moment of clarity or, or realization, it's almost like your house has gotten hit by a car. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but before we get to that, I I want to just um, do a little bit of speculative fiction here. I I was uh, I was hoping. That for a show that seems to open with a, a bit about limited perspective and about incomplete information, I, I was noticing how we were confined to the house, the setting of the house, uh, until um, oh, what's his name, Dieter, or you know whatever it is, Manfred, uh, Manfred comes back and um, and crashes into the house. That we were confined to the setting of the house, and I, w- I was thinking about that and about. Um, uh, the use of the camera to control uh, to control information and what the camera sees and what the camera doesn't see, um, uh, especially with like the webcam, you know, and mm-hmm. what uh, like mm-hmm. because an image, uh, you know, an image purports to reveal but sometimes can obscure, right? And that and that this is something that that you deal with with the webcam because it's such a tiny shitty camera in your uh, in your computer and also because you don't know the context of what of what you're seeing. And I think for this kind of Ibsen like you know, um, uh, domestic kind of sex-soaked domestic tragedy, right? Like the the confinement to the domestic space, I thought was really powerful, and it didn't end up it didn't end up going that way. But um, you know, I thought that would have been a, a pretty strong choice. It was like a little one-act play, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and a little one-set play. Um, Sure, sure. Unity, unity of time, unity of action, unity of location, etc. Right, and it's a man's, and really, it would have been a play about Sid's father, not really about Sid, because he's mm-hmm. the one who kind of goes from being infantilized to kind of, you know, taking the reins of his own life uh, over, you know, over the course of the um, uh, the arc of the thing. Uh, now, so anyway, that's that's my little bit of speculative fiction. I'm not sure it's worth anyone commenting on, but. Um, but can we talk about the uh, can we talk about the truck? Can we talk about the truck of inevitability? I mean, do you think it's possible that Sid and Tony can get along now at the end of the episode uh, because they've now both been hit by a car? Hmm. Um, anyway, the uh, the uh, you know I I I think it was a truck not so much of inevitability as the last truck was. This was more a truck of reification. Uh, you know, could you could you unpack that, please? <laughs> <laughs> unpack the uh, unpack the reification. Well, uh, quickly while I I Wikipedia reification <laughs> so, as, <laughs> so as to make sure I don't miss a crucial part of the um, uh, of the uh, I think it's a I think it's a psychoanalytic concept that comes into literary criticism um, where sort of ideas are made into things, right? Or it's also, it's also, I guess, something in, in Marxian uh, criticism, too, isn't it? Well, it's where, it's where ideas are made, like, more concrete and, and, like, less problematized than they really are, right? So things are aggregated into, like, real holes um, when, in fact, they're, like, an, uh, a sloppy agglomeration of ideas or, or attributes. Right. Um, yeah, and so, uh, right, so, so the truck, that is to say, we can say that the, 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 you know, Mercedes hatchback, uh, that gets driven into the house is kind of an overdetermined symbol, or it's not really clear what's happening at that moment, uh, you know, as far as the significance of the narrative, so it, uh, or, you know what I mean, like, sort of sorting out the dramatic implications of that moment is, um, is tough, so we just, uh, we just create a, uh, car crash and, uh, and, you know, hope that works. Hmm. I mean, in a way, it's sort of, uh, <laughs> it, it, it feels very kind of, um, ironic 
from the point of view of the writer, kind of a disgust with the practice of writing, which is that, okay, you spend the first two acts building up these carefully nuanced psychological relationships, and then in order for there to be a dramatic closure, you need to have people change. And the way to motivate the change is to have a point of crisis. Now, of course, life doesn't really work like that, right? You know, rather, when people have untenable family situations due to their complicated psychologies, those tend to just persist more or less forever. Uh, but you can't do that in drama, so you need to have a car just smash into the house, and then people can react to that, and we'll get closure all over the place. Right. Could I mean, did the car really need to smash into the house? Couldn't Manfred have just knocked at the door? Well, yeah, but I mean, it would have been metaphorically the same, right? The, the car smashing into the house is sort of the writer saying, like, look, I know how stupid it is to have Manfred come in and provoke everyone into action now. But guess what? It's happening anyway. This is happening, people. This is not yeah, a drill. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, just well, it is, it. it's foreshadowed a little bit, right? Because I, 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 one of my favorite sets of lines in the in the episode is um, right when Sid's mom arrives. Um, you know, uh, uh, the um, oh, oh, Sid's dad, uh, you know, says something about basically, you know, Manfred's uh, Manfred's Blitzkrieg um, and his, you know, his need <laughs> for his like romantic Lebensraum. Um, and I don't remember the exact construction <laughs> of the sentence, but it was like, uh, and it, it's you know, and and she says, well, you know, you can't help being German. Right. And so um, and, and so uh, it's 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 weird, though, because it's it's it, a little at odds with the you know, the, one of the stereotypical, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, national broad national stereotypes. I mean, I think one of the is that stereotypes of Germans is this kind of, you know, coolly rational um and, and, and calculating. And this is almost more like a, I don't know, somewhat out of like, like, it's like, it's more of the, from the, the stream of, of German romanticism, right? Like it's, it's like, hmm. you know, it's like Euro trash Goethe or something like that. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, the sorrows and, of young Manfred. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and, um, and he comes, um, but it's, it's, I don't know. I don't know whether it's, it's a new portrayal or it's kind of like, like sloppy. Um, cause he's also, it's also all about a, a property transaction. Ultimately, you know, I, I need my baby. I need my chip, right? I used to come in and take what's his. Was he actually quoting the Busta Rhymes song there? Do you think? <laughs> Wait, which Busta Rhymes song? The, you know, I, I love my baby. I love my chick. Yeah, the one where he's in the the dirt bike or not the dirt bike, the ATV. I may be I may be and, misremembering. Not narrow it down. Just about every Buster rides <laughs> video. He's just at some point riding a dirt bike or ATV. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, it, it is an interesting kind of uh, kind of moment there where like. Yeah, he needs to he needs to charge in and start uh, start taking swings because that proves how much in love he is or something and then what he wants he takes. Do we want to talk about the uh, the club at the end? Do you want to talk about uh, uh, the music? Oh, we should say uh, in case the listeners know, Jordan did a little research on what the uh, on what the melody that he's uh, that uh, uh, Sid's dad is whistling before the end is. You'll oh, yeah, touch on so, that and segue to music in this episode and maybe in Skins in general. Take it away, Jordan. Sure, sure. Well, that um, wh- the, the last thing, I think, that Sid's father does before he dies is he starts humming a little tune, and it's the, uh, the Flower of Scotland, I think, is the title of it, the, sort of the Scottish uh, national anthem, um, which I think lines up really, really well with, uh, with – I'm sorry, what's the name of our reader? Eve? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The uh, the the reading response that we had, where she says that Scottishness is kind of mapped onto manliness. So after he recovers his manliness, he sings a little Scottish national ditty. You know, it was a, a very very interesting, very telling moment, really. Well, and it's about it's a it's a identification of of sort of personal assertion of independence and, and autonomy with a sort of. Um, assertion of peoplehood, right? Like the existence of a Scottish, um, you know, national anthem is something that marks them as being separate, as being an autonomous unit within, you know, the greater, you know, the um, United, greater United Kingdom. Which means, yeah, wow, we have German romanticism all over the place in this, don't we? Right. Right. 
<laughs> wow. Wow. Would you, would you care to unpack that for me? <laughs> oh, just that, I mean, it's like one of the things that you talk about with German Romanticism, along with uh, Sturm und Drang and landscapes and uh, the virgin whore dichotomy, is the idea that uh, nationhood and peoplehood um, and Volkstumlichkeit uh, are very, very intertwined with the idea of the, the psychological self as an important uh, sort of reified thing. <laughs> that tie enough together? No, that's that's great. Uh, um, no, I think that that's I think that's absolutely right. Um, I think it's really interesting, right? Because um, and but it is definitely identified with a, a take on on masculinity as well. Because um, there's like a really interesting thing that happens um, when um, Sid's dad and and mom are getting it on. She starts pillow talking in German, right? She goes, "Yeah, it's good." Right, right. Um, and so, like, there's a kind of interesting, like, take on on assimilation um, there, and both, you know, the the kind of, you know, interpersonal and individual assimilation, and that, like, you know, and the relation between the self and the collectivity, right? Um, and so, what's interesting is that, you know, to tie back to, to Sid's dad, is that, you know, in some ways what he does, you know, in, in whistling the Scottish, uh, um, you know, national anthem is is that he's he's kind of redefined, you know, Scottish manhood, right? He's not this kind of pseudo, you know, fascist, former paratrooper, man's man. Um, but but in standing up for this, this personal individualism, he's kind of like... And even though he's kind of middle class and much more British assimilated as a kid who's, for all intents and purposes, um, uh, you know, a, a British kid um, or an English kid, um, you know, he has still identifies as as Scottish through, um, you know, the the action that he was able to to take. And and I think they, I mean, it's inter- and it's it's telling that that. Um, it's it's really interesting that that is the last thing that we see him do, and you know presumably he dies, I guess, of a heart attack or, you know, of nationalist fervor, um, <laughs> you know, in his sleep. I don't know. Um, but yeah, let's. I mean, like I said segue. I mean, I think that I mean, something I like to talk a little bit about is, you know, what's what's really interesting about how they play that. Um, is that it starts with him whistling, and then the um, the the soundtrack music, the the extra um, diegetic music comes in and and sort of provides accompaniment, right? And I think that Skins does um, a number of interesting things with like music that is you know that is diegetic that's within the world of of the plot um, versus music that is you know soundtrack. I mean, you guys talked a little bit last week about the the uh, post-rock music that was was playing uh, during the, I believe, the um, sketch, one of the sketch sex scenes. Is it the sketch uh, Anwar sex scene, or...? It's actually the, it's the leitmotif for sketches sexual activity. It gotcha. comes back every time. Um, right, right. So I think that, um, and there's a few interesting, you know, examples of this. Um, and I think one is in this episode, um, is the uh, is is the show they go to, and so I think um, so. They what what ends up happening is that Tony and Sid end up at a, at a concert, and the concert is. I mean, the the main act of this is um, by a band called Crystal Castles, who are a. Um, I mean, I think that you could, they definitely have bits of uh, electro clash in there. Bits of is essentially abrasive, noise oriented. Um, um, Electronic, digital, um, lo-fi punk rock, right? And um, and and the the role that it plays, I mean, it's, 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 they're an interesting choice because um, you know they basically feature a lot of um, discordant noises, a lot of uh, a lot of female uh, shrieking, um, and so it, it, it kind of of echoes the uh, Tony Tony freaks out at the rave scene from um, the first episode of this series, sure. um, but it, it, like it, it's this again. It has a little bit of this internal storm and drum, but then it has also this signifier. I mean, the crystal crystal castles are this are a um, you know a hip a hip indie band, right? It has a similar effects to. Um, 
to Sonic Youth playing at Rufus and Lily's wedding on Gossip Girl, right? It's a little bit of a uh, uh, a of like, yeah, we're we're in we're in touch with what the kids are listening to. We we're on the waffles. Hmm. You could also, I mean, try this on for size. I think that you know more about this kind of music than I do. But would it be fair to say that? Uh, Crystal Castles is a little bit too much uh, too much techno to be indie rock, but a little bit too much indie rock to be dance music. So it kind of sits uneasily on the bubble between the uh, the purely bodily music of dance, where it's kind of all all context based and it's about you uh, getting your heart rate up and having you move through the actions, and the very kind of cerebral culture of indie rock, where like if you dance at the concerts, you're kind of lame and you're supposed to sit there and sway sort of slowly back and forth and uh, and not really emote too much and stare at the stage. Right. Which could I think that's I think that's a really good point. Well I think it's also they I mean I think they also have a foot in a even more cerebral side of the the indie rock world, which is like the like noise community, right? And the kind of experimental uh, noise uh, community um, of of which we I guess are also a part in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. (laughs) um, and yeah, no, I think that that's I think that's a, a good reading. And, you know, you could, if you wanted to, you could say that this uh, it makes them a perfect band for Skins, which is kind of about, like, the, the intersection of, uh, of hormone and sex with, like, you know, with, with, with the mind, with, uh, with education and with identity politics and whatnot. Well, I think, that that's, I think that's a good point. It also, it, it leads me back to a, um, a musical, a, another music conversation that we had um, Early on, when we, when we talked about the JAL, the first JAL episode, um, and we're trying to figure out what kind of music genre, what kind of performer, performer um, JAL's dad was, and we were talking about what kind of a hip-hop artist he is. Um, and I feel like, based on some of the um, listener feedback that we got and, and the little um, research that I've been doing on the Waffles and elsewhere, that he really is meant to have been, I think, a trip-hop artist. Like, he's essentially a stand-in for Tricky. Um, I, um, <laughs> I like and, that, and I think it makes sense, right? Because I mean, this is another kind of um, you know genre spanning and, and, and kind of um, mashup kind of, of genre, right? And it was based in in Bristol in uh, the uh, the early early nineties, late eighties, early nineties, right? And so Tricky um, and Massive Attack had their roots as as a sound system, right? As a um, a, you know a, a, a traveling DJ collective, kind of rooted in um, Jamaican dancehall uh, and dub culture, um, but th- they kind of then um, evolved into a much more down-tempo, uh, much more, um, you know, taking samples from a lot broader range of things and turned it into, you know, the kind of cerebral party music, or sorry, the very bodily party music into this kind of cerebral sample-based uh, reflective music um, that at the time I think must have sounded very strange and alienating, but now it's like the kind of thing that you would hear if you go to a kind of, you know, swanky lounge um, dimly lit, uh, you know, leather banquette kind of place around New York. Yeah, yeah, or or to like a uh, to the right kind of clothing boutique, right? I read somewhere once that it's like never has a has a music gone from avant garde to muzak so fast as trip hop did. Because uh, I feel like most people, like the first time you hear a trip hop song, uh, what is it? Um, phylogeny be, uh, re- recapitulates ontogeny or the other way around, right? Like you go through that process. The first time you hear trip hop, you're like, wow, what is this crazy music? Then like the second or third time you hear it, you're like, eh, I, I could see myself buying a shirt to this. Yeah, this this definitely goes on my mood playlist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't want to come down too hard on Tricky. I actually really admire a lot of Tricky's music, but like, it, it is funny how completely sort of absorbed by uh, consumer culture it has become. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, there's not just, I mean, I think another good example of this is, uh, is someone like Moby as well, mm-hmm. right? That um, I, I actually went to a, um, a Moby concert with, uh, with fellow overthinking at Fenzel in, in Boston because he had free tickets uh, through a someone that he knew who I think had been a Moby groupie at some point, um, and and we went and I was like with pretty much you know kind of um, 
you know, as much as much of uh, as much distance as I could muster. Um, and I think what was cool is that Moby covered. Um, it, like we got there late in the show, walked in as he was uh, starting a cover, uh, an amazing cover of War Pigs by Black Sabbath, um, hmm. and it was like. And it was like well, basically the part we saw was like you know he had a full band, lots of backup singers, and it was like a big like I mean it was not a dissimilar effect from seeing like a you know like seeing broken social scene right. But I, I associate Moby with the uh, you know the Gwen Stefani song stuff that's in commercials and all of this right. And mm-hmm. and so it's and I think that you know in fact Will Slim is another example of this that you know certain kinds of electronic music that. Um, you know that that can seem very um, abrasive for whatever reason. I don't know what it is. If it's something about you know, compositional effects or or what, but it lends itself. Maybe, I don't know if it lends itself more readily to appropriation or what. So I don't know if this means that we're going to start seeing crystal castles um, in in uh, you know ads for crystal for crystal light. I don't even know where, why it <laughs> made sense at all. But well, I mean, even the fact that it's on skins, right? is step one of this process, you know? Sort of. I mean, it's... Right, uh, this this episode was early 2008, so Ryan, in the the sort of development of of Crystal Castles towards, you know, indie rock superstardom, where were we at that point? Um, Well, I think that, um, you know, just felt a little more time for me to uh, pull up the the pitchforks, but... um, You know, I couldn't get through through to uh, Wikipedia before to to fill out my definition of reification, so maybe all the internets are down. Maybe we're we're thrown back on the resources of our own minds, which is terrifying. Um, (laughs) So I think that they were... Um, I think that the, you say so. They're um, they were first active like, in underground um, uh, in the early two thousands, but they, I think they they bubble they bubbled up um, into the indie mainstream um, as much as that seems like an uh, uh, oxymoron uh, in in early two thousand eight, um, and with with a uh, debut album that was a collection of like a variety of. Uh, singles and seven inches that had been released on uh, on on uh, like self released or on on much smaller labels. So this like is is I mean you could even see it as probably as part of the um, I'm not sure which label they were on at the time, uh, but there's probably like a um, like a indie major right. So this was probably the appearance on the show was also probably part of um, a promotional campaign right. So everyone benefited from this. Um, they they got free promotion and skins got to signal like you know hey you know we uh, we're in tune with youth culture and they played lots of sort of mainstream indie before they played uh, LCD sound system and Feist and Grizzly Bear and so it's, I mean there it's similar tricks to um, you know what's in the um, the the Gossip Girl playbook in terms of engagement with with music. Um, I guess that makes, I mean, maybe one thing to close on is one thing that makes, um, that, that stands in a little bit of contrast to that, um, which you guys really didn't get to discuss when it happened in the sequence of the show, is the musical number that ends series one, right? The, uh, the Cat Stevens, uh, song. Oh, yeah, uh, we, never, we never have talked about this, which is, which is a shame. We should. Right. So, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, how does that square with, the rest of the ways we've seen music used um, in in uh, in skins thus far. I mean, to me, it seems pretty discontinuous. Um, I mean, what is what do you what do you guys think? Well, it uh, yeah, it's kind of a fantasy ballet, isn't it? Right, like uh, sort of to end the, to to sort of end the episode. It seems like we kind of all uh, take a flying leap off the the cliff cliff of realism, right? Yes, which is unique. Which is unique in a show where the kind of where the, uh, the high degree of verisimilitude in depicting the you know social realities of uh, uh, right of sort of life in a you know post-industrial British city or an industrial British city after the you know all the in, a lot of the industry is gone. Right, like. Um, yeah. It would be interesting um, to know whether when they made that episode and when they made that choice, did they know there was going to be a second season of Skins? Because it's my impression that the, the way that, uh, that TV works in the UK is um, 
each each sort of series is much more of a one-off. In in America, kind of the the assumption is right that your show will keep going unless it's canceled, and that's a tragedy when it happens. Um, so, like, if it's been doing well, then you hope that you like you try to leave the um, the thing open to continuation next time around, right? Whereas I feel like uh, the end of season one of Skins, it felt a little bit more like an actual ending, you know. Um, and in that sense, you know, we can uh, we can tie it back into German Romanticism with uh, Heinrich Heine, who said, uh, "When when words leave off, music begins." That this mm-hmm. is kind of like we've told you this much and now here's the song to carry it to what we cannot tell you through through language you know i think that makes sense right because i mean it is, the title of the song is wild, wild world right and so that this is like you know this is like the craziness like that that teenagers inhabit you know people just get hit by trucks left and right mm-hmm. it's crazy. yeah yeah it's a wild truck <laughs> truck smashing world <laughs> Yeah, it's madness. It's absolute madness. And like, and this is, you know, it it also, it's also kind of like the musical montage that comes at the end of the first season of The Wire, right? Where it's sort of saying, all right, we've told you all these stories. You've probably gotten pretty invested with the characters by this point, but now let's pull it back and show you how this is just one slice of a broader systemic thing, you know? So it's like, it's not just Tony who gets hit by the truck. It's a truck smashing world. Yeah, Sid gets hit by a truck, too. I mean, in, in a way that's more similar to um, a Glee number. I mean, how, how do you read this, um, this, this number as being uh, similar or different to the musical numbers in Glee? Hmm. Hmm. Well, it's, I mean, look, certainly there, there are aspects of kind of fantasy, like singing along to lyrics or... Uh, you know, Rachel singing into her hairbrush in front of her mirror and things like this. And, like, you could imagine Sid walking down the street, you know, like humming a song to himself or singing a, singing a song to himself. But, but the, um, uh, the, there's a presentational kind of uh, layer that gets put on top of it. Like, I think he looks directly into the camera. Um, there are also certain, like, sort of arrangements. There's certain choreography, like, arrangements of people. Like, doesn't Chris stand underneath Angie's window or something? Yes, or, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, right, singing to her where it's kind of, like, where it's kind of representational, where it's, where it's like, hey, this is a picture, this is a sort of portrait of, of the state of this relationship at, at this moment. Yeah. Um, I, felt, I felt like it was not meant to be something that any of them were actually doing. You know, I, I feel like that's what separates it from Glee to me is that it is, as you say, presentational rather than representational, right? Like, I, I don't really imagine Sid actually singing it. Um, I feel like it's just sort of a picture of where they all are. So, to the degree that it's like any of the Glee musical numbers, it's maybe like the um, the the Beck loser song that they sing when they're uh, they're all working at the at the Buy More mm-hmm. or the linens and things or whatever, right? Um, which again seem to be just kind of like this is a slice of our life rather than let's put on a show, guys. You know what it reminded me of? I haven't seen this for a long time, so correct me if I'm not like really remembering it well. But it kind of reminded me of the climactic scene in Magnolia, um, where Everyone sings the the Amy Mann song, mm-hmm. yeah. um, but I don't know. Cause I don't remember exactly the role that that plays. But I think it's also a similar kind of thing where people aren't really aware that they're singing the song, right? Um, yeah, it, it just sort of it, it's meant to bring it all together in a certain way. But yeah, it's not a question of singing into the hairbrush into the mirror. Uh, they're not using it to deal with anything. They're just sort of presented to you as singing it. Yeah, it's right? a, it's it's more of a portrait. Uh, you know what I mean? That's kind of elongated in time. But like, here's a portrait uh, that that uses music to kind of reach the ineffable uh, the ineffable qualities of experience, yeah. as Jordan was saying. And you well, know, the, you, um, you, oh, I was going to go into the exit sequence, but go go go. Oh, I was just going to say that the um, the the Tony getting hit by the thing by the by the by the truck is not that dissimilar in effect from the rain of frogs in Magnolia, right? It's like it's a crazy world. Stuff just just happens. Frogs just yeah. fall out of the sky. Yeah. Germans just end up in your in your yard. <laughs> <laughs> 
do you want to end up in our yard? <laughs> no. If so, if so, join the conversation. Um, uh, in all of the ways that I mentioned before, uh, TFT Podcast at Overthinking.com, give us a call, 203 285 6401. Um, well, give us a text message. We haven't. I don't think we've gotten many, um, many, many overthought text messages. So you know, give us a give us an overthought text message. I, I challenge you, our listeners, that, that your homework for uh, this coming week. Um, send us uh, some some text messages. Um, you know, join in. Uh, we, we've been starting to to pick up a little more on the TFT Twitter. Um, it's TFT Podcast uh, at TFT Podcast on Twitter. Um, so follow us on there. Start at replying us. Start a conversation about all teen-related things that you see in the news, whether it's Gossip Girl and Glee production news, uh, things about other teenagers. I, I tweeted um, a great analysis um, of, a, of a Kesha video, because I think Kesha is definitely a fucking teenager um, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, in, so, in Actually, in almost all the ways, she fulfills that. <laughs> Right, right. As opposed to like, you know, like the Jonas Brothers who are like fucking teenagers in only one of the ways, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, except for, the, except for the married one. Right, right, right. Is he, yeah, is he still a teenager? Oh, no, that's a good point. I guess he may be in his 20s. So, he, so he's neither. <laughs> Um, but yeah and hopefully sometime in the next few weeks so we have about um, I think about seven more weeks left of summer school Um, the the season of uh, um, both Glee and Gossip Girl start up uh, again in mid mid to late September so we'll be we'll keep trucking on um, on 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 skins until then we have about uh, after this one we have about uh, seven episodes left so I think we'll be continuing the pace, the slowed down pace of about one per week. We'll try to give you a little bit of a heads up if we're going to do two. Um, so let's assume the next week we'll do um, Skins Series 2, Episode 4, which I believe is Michelle. Yep. Um, and hopefully sometime soon, you know, we've had uh, a few write-ins of, uh, um, of, of listeners who've, who've uh, responded to our call uh, for, for real teenagers and real, real, uh, real females. Um, and so we'll hopefully have some of them on, on the show in, uh, in coming weeks. Um, anything else? Any other announcements? Procedure? No, I just, I just want to compliment you. These fucking teenagers! <laughs> I want to compliment you on the, on the way that you've led this, this podcast. You've showed a, a, a great leadership uh, qualities. Well, hmm. well, thanks. You know, it, it, it really, it, you know, if, if it were only praise, I would really um, not believe it. Um, and so... <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I, I really, um, I, I got to say, though, I think we have a lot of rebuilding to do in, in this relationship. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I felt like that was actually... Other people into it. Um, and, and <laughs> I felt like there was some rhetorical irony in that. It was like, you know, Sheely tells you to send us a, a message at the TFT Twitter, and Sheely is an honorable man. <laughs> um, I, I think Jordan should write a, should write a rather Sheely slash fic. <laughs> Actually, oh, that would be very funny. You wanna, you want to to cinch for yourself a, a, um, a, a permanent hosting gig on this show, right? No, now. Wait, 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 wait! Just, just before you finish that sentence, you realize what you're doing is offering a position on this show in in exchange for writing pornography about us, right? I just want to make sure we're on the same page here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Does could this be could this be construed uh, any lawyers in the audience as soliciting yeah, exactly. like, this is exactly, uh, <laughs> like contributing to the corruption of a minor and yeah, so forth I, I suppose. yeah exactly it's this true. is why this is why you need me on this podcast <laughs> because without me on this podcast you'd be in jail <laughs> <laughs> probably this would just be creepy <laughs> probably yeah i guess i guess the uh, the telos of a girl is to go wild is not the <laughs> is not a defense to uh and the uh, the, the telos of the creepy drama teacher is to hit on the hottest girl right <laughs> well if skins has taught us anything it's that <laughs> these fucking teenagers and me